the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Irreverent, over the top, and smart as a whip. This is the Rob Black Show. Welcome in. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Thanks for listening to the show. Interesting times on Wall Street. Some things that we have to talk about, the retail sales numbers this morning. Markets opened higher. I'd say considerably higher. Retail sales rose more than expected. Stocks are rallying as inflation data uh, tempers rate fears. SP 500 surged 1.3% on the open. The Dow was up roughly 1.6%. The NASDAQ was up over 1%. Big tech, big cap tech doing quite well. Consumer sentiment rose slightly in July. That's the economic release that we're looking at today on top of retail sales. The broadest measure of retail purchases climbed 1% in June from the prior month. It's interesting because it doesn't include inflation, which basically, yeah, we spent more, but reality, we got less. That would be referred to stagflation, which is not good either in the words of flations. Citigroup was a bright spot for investors this morning. They had an 11% jump in second quarter revenue. JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley's were more a little bit more disappointing yesterday. Citigroup shares gained 6% on the news this morning. Worthy of note that JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon summed up the U.S. economy in one paragraph yesterday, and it sounds bad. Uh, I like Jamie Dimon enormously. It helps build a case of where we are in my head. The employment numbers in the United States helps build a case of where we are. I like putting this all together. On Thursday, Jamie Dimon summarized the state of the U.S. economy. He said, on one hand, the U.S. economy continues to grow in both the job market and consumer spending, and their ability to spend remain healthy. That's good. But geopolitical tension, high inflation, waning consumer confidence, and uncertainty about how high rates have gone and where they're going to go. On top of never-before-seen quantitative tightening and their effects on global liquidity, combined with the war in Ukraine, its harmful effects on energy and food prices. And he thinks it's negative consequences on the global economy sometime down the road. But the good news is he talked about jobs. The bad news is he talked about inflation. Back to school is part of the retail sales numbers that we're seeing. It's in my mind. I'm considered, I, I would refer to myself as wealthy, but at the same time, my head's going, oof, I'm not looking forward to seeing the bills coming up. So stocks are rallying on upbeat economic data today. Citigroup's profit is falling as it preps for potential loan losses. The loan losses make it look like it was a bad quarter, but what it is is saying in the future of that bad quarter does materialize, we've already taken the loss on it. <clears throat> Elsewhere, China's economic comeback 
from COVID-19 shutdowns likely to be slow and bumpy. I think we should get used to that. One of the things I'll ask people when I see people last night, a friend of mine um, found some cancer that is progressing. And one of the things he and I talked about where, or like, what are you seeing out there? How are you doing? How's the treatment going? What's your long-term goal? And he would ask, like, when's the stock market coming back? So that's worthy of note. Netflix seems to be, they're going to be an interesting one to chat about in the, Netflix is going to be interesting to talk about this quarter. Because they just got through their Stranger Things big bump. And it's expected they're to lose about 2 million subscribers. Last quarter, the market freaked out on 200,000 subscribers. Um, don't have much else to say about that. But back to school spending is expected to reach a new high amidst increased spending on mental wellness. Wait, wait, what? More than a third of shoppers have purchased items or services to improve a child's mental health in the last year. Interesting, right? Something tells me my parents didn't do this for me. Parents are expected to spend about $661 per student in back to school. Technology spending for this age group is expected to climb by 8% after a surge during the pandemic. For college students, technology is still a significant buy with spending on those items expected to surge 22%. So back to school hits college and back to school hits kids in K through 12. With inflation climbing this year, a lot of parents are expected to spend more simply due to higher prices. There's an opportunity for retailers to gain trust and loyalty by messaging around back-to-school prices, especially that many have placed back-to-school orders before inflation became a big issue. So the supply chains are top of mind right now. Inventory shortages. I would say, yeah, if I were on it, I'd be nagging my spouse about, like, make sure you get their back-to-school stuff just in case there's a delay. So over Amazon Prime Day, I picked up a new high-definition camera, and I picked up a couple ring lights. And the ring lights, I thought I was going to get on Friday, but nope, they're not coming for a couple of weeks. So if you need, I would plan to get sooner rather than later. The National Retail Foundation found back-to-school spending to reach $37 billion in line with last year, and back-to-college spending total about $74 billion. So it's an essential category that we pay attention to a lot, like clearly Christmas and the holidays. So stocks are surging on retail sales. Wells Fargo results missed analyst expectations. They took a big charge in case things get worse. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. I'm seeing more and more people do a nice job of trying to educate their children on financial issues. There's teen financial illiteracy. There's free multi-week teaching sessions to anyone in the age group out there. Morgan Stanley seeing it as a way of, well, parents have to talk sex with their kids, so why don't parents have to talk money with their kids? A notable 74% of teenagers said they don't feel confident in their personal financial knowledge. 
around the same percentage of them, 73% say they want to learn more. So there's a, you don't want TikTok doing it completely. There's a pretty good app, um, a podcast out there, Money with Katie. And I think she's doing a much better job of talking to 20-year-old kids than I could and teaching them about money and compounding and interest. I'm more interested in the workers 20, 40, 50, 60, getting them started, getting them accumulating their wealth. Um, when I say things like, yeah, you probably shouldn't spend your money on a rave. I've never been to a rave. So I, I, found, I feel myself kind of silly. My industry needs people who are in their 20s talking to people in their 20s. My industry needs women talking to women. There's certain things that I can do that I, I fall flat on my face and others. So money with Katie is something I would highly recommend taking a look at. A lot of teenagers don't know where to begin. Um, this is ultimately a huge asset in the future. Millennials are going to inherit well. They're going to inherit roughly $60 trillion in assets slated to transfer from primary clients to the heirs in the next two decades in the financial services industry. Next generation planning is very, very important. Find good advisors, find good advice, find good insights. I'm always here. You can find me online at Rob Black's show. I've got podcasts on Google and YouTube, as well as Apple under Rob Black Show. A straightforward approach to managing your money. The Rob Black Show. So there's an investor out there named Jim Rogers. And he is a doom and gloomer. I don't particularly like doom and gloomers. It doesn't behoove me. It doesn't fit my story. It doesn't really work on a show like this. Oh, the market's going to go down. You should go all to cash. With the S&P 500 down 21%, your date, the situation for stocks is pretty grim. This has to be the worst bear market in my lifetime, which means it will go down a lot and it'll last a long time. So says the 79-year-old. Spiking price levels present another concern. Rogers says that most central bankers don't know what they're doing and inflation will get worse. He's correct in that prediction, as we just learned that the U.S. consumer prices increased 9.1% in June from a year ago, fastest pace since 1981. He co-founded the Quantum Fund in 1973 with a man named George Soros, right in the middle of a devastating bear market. He had an amazing run in the 1980s. Um, <clears throat> if you're looking for a safe heaven, he says there's no such thing. Still, he points to assets that will likely help you withstand some of the upcoming onslaught. So if you want to hear negative news, this is it. He says silver. Precious metals are a go-to choice for investors in dark times. Silver is probably less dangerous than anything else. Gold is probably less dangerous. Gold and silver can't be printed out of thin air like uh, money, cash, like digital currencies. So he thinks it helps preserve wealth for inflationary periods. Or is he just old? Silver is used in the production of solar panels. It's a critical component in electrical control units. Rising industrial demand, in addition to usefulness as a hedge, makes silver a particular competing asset for investors. If you don't want to invest in silver, he says invest in agriculture. No one is crossing food out of their budget, he says. For a convenient way to get broad exposure to the agricultural sector, check out Invesco DB Agricultural Fund. 
ticker symbol DBA. And that buys future contracts on things like corn and soybeans and sugar. So I'm not telling you to do that, <clears throat> but I understand some of you want to. You've probably heard if you're hanging around financial media, maybe you have, I don't know. This one seems a little vague to me. Bill Gates is buying farmland. That's been a story. You too can buy farmland, publicly traded, ticker symbol FPI, if that's your thing. Or do you feel like, oh, I think I'm just following someone else's strategy and maybe that's not the best way to go about this. Um, Farmland Partners has a dividend yield of about 1.7%. If you take a look at the last year, it's moved up from about $11 to $13. And if you take a look at from the start of the year, it's moved from $11 to about $13.5. So you could certainly say that it's certainly doing something positive in a year of negatives. So Farmland Partners is ticker symbol FPI. It's a real estate investment trust. And Gladstone Land, ticker symbol LAND, L-A-N-D. Now, I don't expect you to go out and be like Bill Gates and buy 150,000 acres of farmland or 150,000 milking cows or 150,000 bushels of hay. I don't expect that. But if you want to take a look at two real estate investment trusts, Gladstone, Land, as well as FPI, Farmland Partners, they might be your thing. Um, I would say consult a broker advisor taking action on any stocks ever mentioned on this show. Um, I'm not going to stop you from buying or selling. I know that. I'm just going to try to help give you ideas. Farmland Partners is an internally managed real estate company that owns and seeks to acquire high quality North American farmland and makes loans to farmers secured by the farm real estate. So you kind of get how that goes. They own farms in Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Kansas, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Nebraska, North Carolina. So you're buying over 26 types of crops. And maybe that's your thing. Again, maybe that's something that's added to your portfolio. I don't know. In the last five years, Farmland Partners has gone from about $8 to $13.5. But it also has that dividend yield of 1.7%, which is kind of gravy. So you're owning the land, but you're also owning the farm on top of it and the profits that it generates. If it generates now, then you start getting things that I don't know anything about, like droughts and farmland. So I'm not in that game. Long term, I think Jim Rogers is right on this one. I tend not to like him, but we have started making more cases for digital currencies. We have started making more cases for farmland, things that we in the past we didn't, but we're now starting to go, well, why digital currencies, Rob? Because so many people in my industry have jumped ship from hedge funds. And gotten into crypto. So many lawyers have jumped from business law into crypto law. I think it's almost inevitable. Even as countries like China are very big players, and the United States still has some regulation work to do on taxing, something that's supposed to be untaxable, on holding accountable something that's supposed to be held unaccountable. Um. So there's still some work that is going to have to happen. but So it's not my play yet, but it becomes much more interesting if it gets down to 10, 13,000. Every stock that I own right now is in the green. I'm not happy. I'm not robotic. I'm not sad. I'm just 
moving forward. Do I expect it to be up this much tomorrow, Monday? No, I don't. Today is a, we've gotten into a situation where a lot of technicians said the 200 day moving average will trigger a, a rally. So Bank of America is saying we see a mild recession. President Biden's presidency's struggling right now as he's in the Middle East trying to get oil prices lower as well as some relationships repaired. Joe Manchin has basically killed the idea of helping support the solar industry at, as he's a Democrat from a coal mining state. Interesting. That's what your legacy can be, either positive or negative. You can find me online at Rob Black Show, Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. Need a referral to the financial planner? Drop me an email, Rob at robblackshow.com. It's Rob at robblackshow.com. Find us at robblackshow.com. Robblackshow.com. So I teased something that I saw that when I first saw it, I said, no. But when I looked at it a little bit more, I was like, sure, let's go with it. And the more I thought about it, it makes a little bit more sense. But before we get there, yesterday, J.P. Morgan Chase reported a 28% decline in its second quarter profit, only for Morgan Stanley to barely beat that with its own 29% profit decline. So J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley, very similar. J.P. Morgan's profit fell to $8.65 billion, But the main driver of the dip was $428 billion that was set aside. So they didn't really miss earnings. They set aside cash for the future if Chase credit cards go bad. If people stop collecting, if they stop collecting fees or if you leave them in default. Kind of interesting that they actually didn't lose money, but it looked like they lost money on a profit level. They set it aside. Morgan Stanley's $2.5 billion profit um, had a unique circumstance also. It had a $200 million settlement to, uh, into a probe of U.S. regulators into its employees' use of unapproved personal devices. So their quarter wasn't that bad is what I'm trying to get at. When you look at it on just a profit basis, the fine you go that's probably a one-time thing the setting aside money for future losses is it's probably wise seeing what's going on with interest rates and the expectation that we have to fight inflation to the point of losing jobs to fight inflation google got reboofed yesterday i like using the word reboofed because i know it's not being pronounced correctly google because i'm under the watchful eye of the u.s justice department for its dominant position in the online ad market, where it earned $31 billion in gross revenue last year. So a lot of the stress right now on Google is opportunity for companies like Amazon and Apple. Apple has a very good opportunity to grow their advertising business. Twitter is struggling with advertising. Facebook is struggling with advertiser. Google's getting antitrust with advertising. I see openings for Amazon and Apple. Okay, so let's talk millennials for just a quick, a quick second. I've seen millennials blamed for a lot of stuff. Like, yeah, like, uh, I want sushi for 
uh, the cafeteria at work. You're like, are they really that vapid? And the answer is probably. We know that the millennials are getting the tough avocado toast treatment. The latest consumer price index that was shown to us this week, up 9.1% year over year. It's causing Wall Street to get flummoxed and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to say that in the U.S. inflation is unacceptably high. But one investor out there is actually blaming millennials. And when I saw that headline, I'm like, no, I can't possibly run with that. And I'm like, oh, of course I could run with this. So he's talking about the causes that mainstream media, people like me, are saying that steep jumps in high commodity and energy prices are likely triggered from Russia's war in Ukraine, record government spending packages on economic stimulus and low interest rates amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the continuing labor shortage and people asking for more money and getting it and supply chain problems meeting increased demand. That's the conventional wisdom in a nutshell. He's saying it's too many people with too much money chasing too few goods. And ultimately he's, he's, Say the 92 million millennials who basically run the age of 27 to 42. He said the last time we've seen Wolverine inflation like this was for the baby boomers being replaced by, or the silent generation being replaced by the baby boomers. That's very, very, I'm like, okay, let's think about that. And the silent generation, your parents, your grandparents, were 44 million strong in the United States. The baby boomers are 75 million strong. The millennials are 92 million strong. So you could start doing the math and you could say, he may be on to something. It sounds preposterous. Let's blame the millennials. I get it. He says, in the United States, we have a lot of people aged 27 to 42 who postpone home buying, car buying for about seven years, later than most generations. But in the past two years, they've all entered the party together. And this is just the beginning of a 10 to 12 year time period where there's about 50% more people that are wanting these things than there were in the prior group. Interesting. Home buying, car buying, adulting. When you buy a home, you paint the insides, you get furniture for the insides, you get a big new TV, you get a car, you get the semiconductors, you get the technology upgrades. And he's blaming the millennials for inflation. I don't think it's the craziest thought out there, just on the mathematical numbers of how large we're talking. Again, 92 million millennials, 75 million baby boomers, 44 million silent generation. I'm not sure how strong the generation X is, but we were never, I'm generation X, we were never expected to be much. Plenty of millennials would disagree with the idea that they have all the money in purchasing assets. I think if you talk amongst your friends, you'll see that 60% of millennials are delaying home buying due to student debt. Um, millennials are a generation that has seen that debt burden grow fastest on them. The CNBC millionaire survey that went out recently found that millennials are three times more likely to be cutting back on big purchases compared with their baby boomer counterparts. So maybe it's not the millennials driving inflation. I thought it was a great argument to think about. 
Pressure on the housing market is due to the pandemic and due shortage of inventory and high competition. It's also keeping many potential buyers in their late 20s and early 40s away from that group. I know people under the age of 40, over the age of 25, who want to buy a home that can't afford a home. Too many that I know. And for some of them, they're staying with mom and dad instead of going to way cheaper cities to live. Millennials now make up about 43% mathematically of home buyers, the most of any generation, and an increase from last year's 37%. That's a huge jump. One minute. The NRA classifies 23 to 31-year-olds old as younger millennials, while the 32 to 41-year-olds are older millennials. When you throw in 18-year-olds with millennials, I refer to them as zillennials. It's too much to get onto, but it is interesting that the mathematics really says the millennials are, sh- are consumers. And whether they're consuming or not, they should be consuming going forward. That should give you a little thought on just the mathematics alone help support Wall Street over time if we have jobs. You can find me online at Rob Black Show, Twitter Rob Black Show, YouTube Rob Black Show. Need a referral to a financial planner? Drop me an email at rob at robblackshow.com get a copy of all my latest videos and audio clips from the radio show at robblackshow.com brought to you by ep wealth this is the rob black show i'm rob black talking all things financial money investing and more thanks for listening to the show Um, one of the things i really wanted to get across that last segment is something along the lines of If we have jobs, we spend our paychecks and the number of millennials is far greater than the number of baby boomers. The number of baby boomers is far greater than the numbers of uh, the silent generation. There's things that we can look at like productivity, inflation, but really the most important thing to me is how many people have jobs. In my opinion, if we have jobs, we tend to spend our money. Now, again, I'm not going to blame sky-high inflation on millennials, but they are part of the generation spends. In my 20s and early 30s, um, I spent silly. I thought love equaled money or money equaled love, so I'd fall in love and be like, let's go to Miami. Let's have a sexy weekend in Miami. Now I'm like, you want a back scratch? (laughs) Like, it's a little bit cheaper. Um, I know you're saying, I would love a back scratch. Well, you're not getting one. Gasoline prices are all are starting to fall. So again, if people have jobs, that's really, really important. And that's one of the reasons why I used to say on the show, um, the only thing you really have to look at for CNBC is the first Friday of every month, the jobs report. Now with inflation, that's turned, you got to look at inflation now. But now that inflation's starting to recede after exceeding $5 a gallon for the first time in history in the United States, gasoline prices have been falling pretty consistently. Average retail price for gasoline is $4.60, down from a record of $5 and one penny a month ago. It's still way higher than it should be. But the trajectory has fallen. What caused it? A lot of things caused. It's the higher... It's the U.S. demand for gasoline. It's down more than 10% compared to 2019 before the pandemic began. The dollar's having a big effect. As you've heard recently, there's a strong dollar going on because Europe is expected to go into a more painful recession 
due to proximity to Russia and Ukraine and the, the need for natural gas, which they just don't have the infrastructure for energy. They relied too much on nuclear, then they didn't like nuclear and they went to clean gas. And now they're like, clean gas, we can't get clean gas. Maybe we turn back on nuclear. Got to be better than coal, but they're doing everything they can in theory to get the energy infrastructure moving again away from natural gas. If they don't have it, they don't have it. Oil's priced in dollars. So a stronger dollar makes the commodity more expensive to holders of other currencies. Um, So gasoline prices have declined. And it's pretty much so across the whole United States. Um, It could be as little as two cents down from recent highs. Like Colorado is only eight cents down. But it also didn't go up as much. California is in the camp of about down 50, 60 cents. Texas and Ohio down 60, 70 cents. So will gasoline prices continue to fall? I'm not really a predictor of that. I'm watching the price of oil under 100. I think our economy can work. Under 80, our economy can work really, really well. Over 100, it starts to struggle. So a couple things to remember. I like what are referred to as investment truths. I have zero tattoos on my body. But if I were, it would probably be investment truths, right? So. Things that constantly remind you not to quit, not to get greedy, not to get fearful are good things, not to get impulsive. I think you as an investor should get better and better at recognizing like this truth. Long-term market returns include periods of poor returns. Stocks rarely rise without experiencing setbacks along the way. I could only really go back to 1980. Calendar year returns for the S&P 500 are positive in 32 out of the last 42 years. During that 42-year period, the S&P 500 index had an average intra-year decline of 14%. Now, we're down 20% roughly on the S&P, so it's a little bit more than the normal. But stay involved. Investors saving for long-term goals Longer-term returns are more relevant than annual returns. Since 1970, the S&P 500 provided positive returns in 90% of five-year periods and 95% of 10-year periods. That's pretty spectacular results. If you choose to be in cash rather than in stocks, you should know that cash historically has been very poor at preserving your purchasing power. That provides a negative real rate of return. From 1986 to 2021, cash earned 3.5% total return, which became 8 tenths percent net of inflation and negative negative 6 tenths of a percent decline after inflation and taxes. Cash is trash for the long term. Prediction is a very powerful word. Prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future, is a great phrase. It's a quote attributed to Niels Bohr, Nobel laureate in physics and father of the atomic model. How are we turning atomic theory into investment theory? Um, You got to be warned about the perils of predicting the future. 
Investors in the U.S. stock market for the full 20-year period through the end of 2021 earned 9.5% per year, while investors who missed the 10 best days saw returns drop to 5.3% per year. So in the last 20 years, if you had a gut feeling and you were out of the market for 10 days, just 10 days out of over 3,600 days, no, 7,200 days, it's a 20-year period. If you miss those 10 days, your returns drop to 5.3% from 9.5%. Not quite half, but still an alarming number. If you miss the 20 best days out of over 7,000 days, your returns drop to 2.6%. So prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. I'm not in cash because cash earns negative rates of return over time. I have some cash. I'm using my cash in a professional money management account called Flourish. Getting one and a half percent makes me feel good compared to a year ago getting zero. But I'm just waiting for that cash to be deployed as I've talked earlier in this week on how I plan to do that. Market volatility and risk are not the same. I like market volatility. I don't like risk. I will never get on a roller coaster without a seatbelt. I will get on a roller coaster with a seatbelt. One is risky, one is volatile. Most investors have investment time horizons that should be measured in decades rather than days or months. So I'm not really all that freaked out by what's happening. Yes, I have seen my portfolio go from go down 10, 15%. And then through the quarters, I've seen my dividends get reinvested and the pain has gone away. Do I like volatility on the downside? I don't mind. I'm not retired. I'm not using short-term investments to pay for like an addiction or a house or a boat. So I'm not anxious at all. Market volatility and risk are not the same. I like market volatility. I like looking at the last 10 years and 20 years. I like looking at the statistics on how things have done so well over time. So I like looking at cash and knowing historically you get a negative rate of return. Therefore, why would I want to be there? I get emails from you, the average listener, and you're like, yeah, I'm in cash until things settle down. And in my head, I want to insult you. I want to be Andrew Dice Clay. I want to be Howard Stern. Like, what are you, stupid? I want to be your dad, <laughs> right? Shut up, sit down, shut up, sit down. Since 1980, calendar year returns for the S&P 500 were positive in 32 out of 42 years. During a 42-year period, the S&P 500 index had an average intra-year decline of 14%. Every single year, it creates opportunity, but it works itself out. I'm always freaked out on, oh, I've maxed out my 401 Like right now, my 401k is close to maxed out for the year. And if, if we're at a bottom, I'm like stoked. And if we go lower, I'm like, oh, I kind of wish my 401k wasn't fully maxed out. So you should have some truths and you should live by them. 
And again, some of those truths are long-term market returns include periods of poor returns. Every year, the stock market pulls back 14% historically in the last 42 years. And yet we're positive in 32 out of 42 years. So that's the average intra-year decline. You should understand that prediction is very difficult. And if you're on the sidelines for a little bit, you're going to miss big returns. Unless you're a genius rocket scientist um, uh, card reader, which I don't think you are. Market volatility, not the same thing as risk. I don't take a lot of risks. Um, like, for instance, I'm not going to go down class five rapids. I'll go down class four rapids. That's just the way I play. I can have just as good of a time on four and not worry about head injury and on rapids five. Anyhow, I really appreciate doing the show. I really appreciate you listening. If you need a referral to a financial planner, I've been speaking with my financial planner this week, Brad. Um, I think it's really important. EP Wealth has a ton of financial planners in the region. Contact me at robblackshow.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.